Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I'm Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today my guest is Valia Sturgiotti, training coordinator for Interpret Europe. Valia lives in Greece, and we're going to learn a lot more about her journey and interpretation today. Well, Valia, it's so good to see you again and hear your voice. It's been a few years. Hi, Tim. It's so nice to see you, too. We last uh, connected in France, maybe? Or was it in Sweden? Yes. No, unfortunately, I couldn't join uh, the Sweden conference. So, yes, it was France the last time. And we were in Norm. The first time was in Greece. Oh, that's right. The the Greece uh, international meeting. And exactly. Yeah. Um, it was a great opportunity for me to at Athens uh, conference because I am from Greece. So it was all of you guys come to my country and a great opportunity for me to meet you in person. Well, and a great opportunity for us to meet a lot of our colleagues in Europe. I, We were enchanted by Greece and the entire meeting, and uh, it, was a, it was terrific. I remember the people, the food, the atmosphere in your beautiful country. <laughs> uh, I wish you, you could come back, but I guess it's not so easy now from all the way from Hawaii. So, Yeah, I... You know, I think we're 12 time zones, which means we're exactly on the other side of the planet, uh, 3,000 miles away from California. And so where did you grow up? Okay, actually, I grew up in Athens, but in my 20s, I decided that uh, this city is too big, too crowded, and I left. I went northeastern Greece uh, to a national park. And I started my life outside Athens. And this goes on until today. So uh, it's half my life that I have lived outside uh, big cities. And I, I don't regret it, really. Where do you live? No, now I live for the last 12 years. I have been living in Volos, which is central Greece. If you look at the map of Greece, uh, at the center of it, you will see a hook. Uh, a peninsula that is really a very big one. And this is where Volos uh, is. It's a beautiful place, very, very famous actually, even for tourists uh, from abroad, because it combines the sea and the mountain. And we have some very picturesque uh, villages on the mountain and some lovely beaches uh, nearby. If you have seen the first Mamma Mia movie, it, it was, uh, uh, I'd say not directly, but it was, uh, they used the beaches around Volos to make this film. So you see how beautiful it is. I saw the movie and it was a beautiful setting. Uh, yeah. I confess, I really enjoyed the time we got to spend together, you and I and uh, Lisa and Howard, uh, kind of looking at the, tapestry in France after the mm -hmm. workshop that we did, a, a interpretive planning workshop, and we just got to get better acquainted than um, I uh, had an opportunity during the course. So I'm curious, how did you end up in the field of interpretation in the first place? Because this has been a 
for most of us, it's a journey. It didn't, we didn't just go to college and go, oh, I want to do this. Absolutely. For me, it was the same. Um, so I grew up in Athens, but and I studied economics. My bachelor's degree is in economics, believe it or not. Uh, but then I decided, as I said, to leave the big city and also to leave economics. Uh, I, it was a field that I was not very much interested in. So I went to this northeastern place in Greece. It's uh, to give you a hint, it's like two hours away from Istanbul. So you are closer to Turkey, actually, than uh, Greece itself. And uh, why did I go there? Well, there, there is a very famous national park at that uh, area called Dadia. And I went there to work uh, for WWF Greece, the environmental NGO you may have heard of. Uh, it has this logo, the panda, very famous in Europe at least. So they had this project, a long time project, and I went to work for them. Part of that project was to establish and run a visitor center. And I was in charge of it. I was a project assistant for the whole project. But they said, okay, you, you have a background in economics. Uh, you are good with communication skills. So we will give you this area to work on. Uh, it was like a dive in very deep waters for me, but I really enjoyed it. And so I started witnessing interpretation in practice before studying about it in theory. At the same time, I was uh, doing my master's degree at the Open University, the British Open University. And when the time came for the dissertation, um, I had this idea of uh, trying to see how efficient this visitor center was. So all the things that I was noticing, how the guides uh, talked and uh, how they behaved and what was the reaction of the visitors. Uh, I was trying to, to, to find a reason behind that. And uh, the university agreed that this could be my dissertation uh, theme. And so started reading and I discovered there there is a full theory behind that. And I was not the first person uh, dealing with this uh, topic. And uh, at that point, I started, I discovered your books and Lisa's books. So uh, it was, um, you know, phenomenal for me to see that other people had explored this field way before I tried to do it. Um, so years, that was around 2002, 2003. Um, I was really hooked on heritage interpretation. Uh, I kept reading articles and we are talking about uh, some years before the, uh, the, the, the very common use of internet. Okay, we had internet at that time, but it was not as it, as it is, uh, as spread as it is today. So I had to order the books and wait for them to arrive by post. Uh, I was uh, I, I registered as a member of NAI uh, to, to have better access to all of these resources. And then 2009 arrives and I discovered uh, on the back page of the NAI magazine that the next international 
conference will be in Athens. A huge surprise, a very pleasant surprise for me. And I remember the first uh, moment, uh, the first uh, afternoon that I arrived to register at the conference and you were at the door. And for me, it was such a funny feeling to see all the writers of the books that I had been reading for years, but with the body and not just the, the photo of uh, you know, the, the face. Um, yes, that was the, also the, the moment that start meeting people from Europe, um, realizing the other professionals dealing with heritage interpretation in my continent. At the conference in Greece, you met a number of people from Europe that ended up being a kind of a part of your journey in developing Interpret Europe, yeah? Exactly. I met uh, Patrick and Bettina from Germany and Torsten Ludwig, also from Germany, and uh, Maurilio from Italy, and uh, Mike Glenn from the UK. So I was amazed with how many people uh, were there who already dealt with heritage interpretation in their own countries. And uh, I felt, I think we all felt the need to connect uh, at that point, uh, because uh, we were all very much interested in heritage interpretation, but especially in some countries, not UK, not so much the UK, but in some countries, it was like uh, fighting your own uh, battle, uh, trying to explain what heritage interpretation is and uh, how it could improve uh, the, the visitors' experience, the uh, local communities' engagement with uh, heritage, et cetera, et cetera. So it was really like a new chapter in my life after uh, getting to know the NAI and the American writers and professionals in the field. Uh, the second chapter started at that conference for me. That's wonderful. I have to tell you, as you uh, talked about your early experience at the park, I, I became a park naturalist uh, in 1972, and I ran a visitor center at a state park with a million visitors a year, and I had never heard of interpretation. And uh, years later, we changed the title from naturalist to interpreter, recognizing mm -hmm. that much of what we did was cultural interpretation, not just nature interpretation. Mm -hmm. And uh, like you, I I was watching people. I was realizing that some experiences help people make a connection and some really didn't. And yeah, exactly. there had to be some science. And in 1974, I got to go to my first conference in California and it lit me up. I was aware and looking at your website uh, that it's it's such a different world that you're in and than we are. I mean, we knew uh, in the United States that we had like 3,000 paid interpreters at national parks. We had almost 70,000 volunteers working in interpretation in national parks. And then when you add Canada and the United States, both speak English for the most part. I mean, French is an important language in Canada. Um, we really had a broad opportunity to network that you didn't have because there's language differences, cultural differences, governmental barriers and exactly you're figuring out how to 
make that work these days, I'm sure. Yes, uh, we are still figuring it out. And uh, th this challenge is also a very interesting opportunity for us because the more you, you discuss with other people what heritage interpretation is and how should we explain it to the others, uh, the more you, you refine the definition yourself and you choose the path you want to follow. So some things that for me as a master students uh, came as a revelation and they were as uh, almost as a given, like a theory, like an axiom. Uh, nowadays, it's not like that anymore because the more you, you enter this discussion, the more things you discover that are not set in stone and maybe should not be set in stone. And uh, we are all here to, to find the, the road we want to follow in the future. Uh, when you came to the interpretive planning workshop in Normandy, France, uh, was that a valuable piece of your stepping stone yes. that you're doing now? Absolutely. Uh, yet another great opportunity for me because it wasn't possible for me. I could not find any courses uh, about interpretation, such uh, brief and condensed professional courses in Europe. Uh, the British uh, Association, AHI, were, were, was running some courses, but honestly, they were too expensive for me. So uh, when uh, you had this uh, course uh, with, about interpretive planning in Normandy, I jump and say, I have to go there. This is my my case now, my, yes, my opportunity. Uh, I, as I said, I already knew you briefly from the conference in sure. Athens, so, and from your books. Uh, I had already read uh, Lisa's book on interpretive planning, uh, but still it was very, very valuable for me because it was very hands-on. Um, you had five days to, to prepare uh, some ideas uh, about interpretive planning for a specific site yourself. You had to use these days to understand the needs of the site, uh, the opportunities that uh, would offer. So overall, and, and also to discuss within a group, because you were not acting alone, but uh, we had to do some group work. Um, all, all these uh, factors helped me very, very much uh, professionally. And actually the homework that I had to prepare on after going back home, it was part of my job at the time. It was uh, something that I had to prepare myself. Um, I was a little timid uh, whether I would get the certificate or not. And I was very, very happy when I finally got it. And yeah. very proud of it, I should say. <laughs> That's great. You know, the, the funny thing is that uh, two of my most interesting experiences in training in the profession have been that workshop in Normandy. And uh, another one that we did in Italy, in San Quirico, in uh, Val d'Orsha, World Heritage Valley. And we did an interpretive training workshop there and had people from eight different countries. And it just it really uh, opened your eyes to mm. how similar uh, some of our challenges are, and yes. and 
how important it is to be able to share across boundaries and borders. And then the new thing that's happened is the pandemic comes along and uh, brought tourism absolutely to a halt on our mm -hmm. island. I presume it did in Europe and many places. And yet it created this new opportunity because we're doing training via Zoom. And we've actually had uh, participants from Russia, uh, Philippines, uh, a lot of far distant places, people getting up at two in the morning to <laughs> the workshop. And it just makes me aware of, of how hungry we can be as professionals to have a network. Well, we have a similar to what you described. Uh, if you think of Greece, it's a country with many islands. Okay, so a lot of the people who join my courses come from these islands, are interpreters from island natives. Uh, so to, to create a network within my own country now, as a trainer of Interpret Europe, with all the courses that we run, to create this network, to offer this opportunity to professionals of my country to meet, exchange perspectives, uh, feel connected with each other, uh, and really, for me, it's the. I, I feel it is now my turn to give back something to the community. Uh, what I have taken several years ago, uh, now it's my turn to offer to other professionals. Yeah, and that's it's very exciting to us because uh, I don't know, as a trainer, you don't really expect to train everybody. In, in the world, you what you hope is that you sow a seed somewhere and the, someone else becomes that expert trainer in another <laughs> and uh, shares the ideas and we all learn and grow from each other. So uh, I was reading on the Interpret Europe website and I'm reading things like M-I-H, C-I-G, C-I-P, C-I-W. And I have an idea what some of those mean, but I really don't know. Could you tell me okay. what your framework yes. is? Okay, so uh, Interpret, Europe, uh, Interpret Europe's training program started 2015-2016. Um, the first course came from an EU-funded project, a European Union-funded project, uh, and it was for certified interpretive guides, so what we also call CIG, like you call it as well. Um, and it had a history behind of almost 10 years of development. So it was a series of different European projects uh, with uh, different partners from all over Europe, collaborating to improving what they had, etc, etc. Uh, when I got to know this uh, course, um, it was 2014. I joined uh, a project, a European project, and I became a participant. So a trainee of this project at first, uh, my trainer was Thorsten Ludwig. You know him very well, of yes. course. And uh, the, the idea of that project called HeriQ was to train trainers. So we already had the course, the curriculum, uh, the activities where everything was there, even a manual that Thorsten had written. And the idea was to disseminate this to our own countries in our native languages. Um, 
this went so well that we decided that it is worth uh, asking Interpret Europe whether they would like to endorse this course and start its own training program based on this course. However, uh, guides are not the only professionals that need uh, interpretation, so we thought to try to develop the course. Uh, the idea is that members come up with uh, their own needs. For example, if we have uh, an expressed need that people need to write in a more interpretive way, uh, write panels, for audio guides, uh, write uh, leaflets, etc. Then we will try to create a course on interpretive writing, which is the CIW course. Oh, right. Okay. To do that, we ask professionals, again, members of Interpret Europe, to create a team. And together with management and myself as training coordinator, we try to develop this new course. So, fast forward to today. We have the CIG for the guides, the writer's course, uh, a planner's course, and we also have uh, a module that is for uh, interpretive hosts. Um, I don't think it is the same way that you use the interpretive hosting. I will explain how we use it in Europe and you tell me if it's the same way. Okay. So the idea is that we have some protected areas and we have uh, professionals who deal with tourism, but not as guides, not as interpreters. So they may be hostel owners, or they may have a taverna, restaurant, a small uh, restaurant, uh, uh, or they may offer some uh, services, but uh, or sell like souvenir, a small souvenir shop or local products, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So the idea is how to help these people become interpreters and how to help them explain how the services they offer or the products that they sell are connected and support uh, the local heritage. Oh, you just exactly explained the interpretive host program in the United okay. States. Excellent. Because okay. <laughs> to, give you, to give you a brief history, uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife contacted Lisa when Lisa was associate director of NAI working with me and said, we have all sorts of people that work in shops or that uh, drive vehicles, but they do other roles, but they don't give formal presentations, but they need to understand how interpretation can help them make a connection for a guest. And and that led, they actually funded the development of the course in the United States. And we've chosen okay. different initials to describe it, but uh, really pretty much the same thing. Okay. Uh, another one that is in the making now is uh, for interpreters who deal with children. So how to help children make this connection, uh, meaningful connection. And uh, another one is uh, for live interpretation. Uh, so costumed, either first person or third per, uh, first person. What we call it, interpretation. Yeah, we call it living history and uh, first yes, person. Yeah. exactly. And uh, so all this, uh, we also talk about, we, we are talking about uh, gastronomy. So perhaps 
in the future, we will have a module on how to interpret gastronomy and uh, geology. So many different ideas. Now, if I understand correctly, you are an independent contractor. Uh, you, you're a consultant working with a variety of clients, but then when you train for Interpret Europe, you in some way are paid through the fees uh, for that and interpret okay. it's part of that, yeah. Uh, every person who is a coordinator in Interpret Europe is a volunteer. Ah. So this may take a long part of my day, and honestly it does, <laughs> but it's a, a, it's a voluntary work. Uh, this voluntary character stops when I become a trainer. So oh. as a trainer, I'm a freelancer. As I am uh, also uh, as an interpretive planner, I'm also a freelancer or consultant. But the work that I offer to Interpret Europe and all the development of the courses that I already mentioned uh, that other uh, people offer, all this is, uh, is voluntary work. And we do it because we believe that uh, only by offering, uh, we will strengthen, we will help this network to stand on its feet and uh, proceed and actually you take so many things back right it's not uh, you you know very well it's not just uh, about money if i look at myself uh, how i was in 2015 when i first became the training coordinator and all the valuable experience i gained and all the um, uh, friends i met and all the interesting people that offered advice and discussions and really I'm, I'm a different person today thanks to interpret europe i i understand that uh you know between 2000 and 2012 the 12 years lisa and i were training over a thousand trainers in the united states and around the world to some degree um we continually improved the course a little bit at every step we could. Mm -hmm. And I used to say that uh, the course was really turned on the lathe of a thousand minds because mm -hmm. we had all of these talented people that we were continually in contact with and they would give you ideas and you'd think, well, I've got to figure out how to incorporate that because it's yeah. too good to leave behind. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a deep part of this whole experience. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious. I was reading about, and I'm going to mispronounce this. Ali'i Mary, A F I I M E R I A, Ali Maria. Ah, Ali Maria. Okay, <laughs> now I got it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 my... <laughs> okay, Ali Maria means the other side. Uh, it happened to be the name of the village I lived until last September. Uh, but it was also a very, I thought it was a very provocative name for my own consultant uh, professionals, let's say, the, the firm that I have. Um, it's my alter ego, I would say. So uh, sometimes you look at the other side and wonder what is there, or uh, uh, sitting on the fence, you look on both sides and wonder what can I get from this part and what can I get on the other so many many symbolisms uh, that come that can come out of this uh, name um, 
one day, if I'm no longer the training coordinator of Europe, maybe Ali Maria will get more of my attention and will expand more. But for the time being, I'm very happy the way things are. So it's small, but uh, flexible, and it gives me the opportunity to collaborate uh, to, to collaborate with institutions, uh, with NGOs, with people here in Greece and in the Balkans to uh, promote heritage interpretation. I should say a few things, Tim, about the difference. We already discussed before how um, through the discussions we have about heritage interpretation, how this term uh, slightly changes through the years. And I think this same has happened to you and Lisa. Uh, so in the last, last few years in Interpret Europe, many discussions have led to what we call now value-based heritage interpretation. Uh, probably you remember the term uh, you joined uh, in our online uh, conference a few years ago. And very briefly, the way I describe it to my trainees is that we are not here, we are here not just to learn about heritage, but also to learn from heritage. So heritage, natural and cultural, can inspire us in so many different ways on how to be active citizens, on how to uh, create and develop critical thinking, something that we desperately need in our days, right? Uh, how to um, use, uh, live a life of sustainability uh, on all levels. Uh, even today, I was think, reading this article about uh, philosophy to, to spark this uh, value thing back to people. Because in our days, and I'm sorry if I'm becoming a little political here, I feel this is missing. And I want to, to give just a little, little gift to the society from my part. And I want, I want this gift to have this direction. Uh, use heritage interpretation to make meaningful connections uh, between people and heritage and make people more mindful about the society we live in. You take me back in time because uh, in the 1980s, I was a nature center director. And I said uh, in one of our board meetings, a nature center is very much about values education. And I had a board member who objected that term. He says, well, you shouldn't be talking about values with children and such. <laughs> and really? I, I said, uh, gee, what do you do? And he's, he's the marketing director at the hospital. <laughs> and I said, and at your hospital, you're not trying to get people to eat better, quit smoking, exercise, lose weight. <laughs> oh, yes, we're, I said, those are values. I said, we're trying to get people to live more sustainably, take better care of the earth, uh, mm -hmm. think about the resource use and the demands they make on uh, everything. Mm -hmm. And it's just a funny thing that, you know, the evolution of our field very much started with giving people information. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the social marketing construct 
that goes from uh, we at least we use it in training that goes from uh, dragged along to curious to aware to understand to care about to care for mm -hmm. uh, making the point that people we meet are at all different stages of that continuum and we're not trying to tell them what to think we're trying to get them to think exactly yeah we're tr we're trying to get them to be more mindful as you say uh and this is also a very crucial point in my opinion because if you tell people what to do and you may persuade them okay you may do an excellent job like a very good uh, advertiser okay but then maybe a better advertiser comes along and exactly. gives them another message. So the point is not to, to, uh, lear to learn by someone what we need to do, but to understand it for ourselves. And critical thinking, I think is so, so crucial in our days. And uh, yes, I, I still try to figure out how to inspire this to my own children to friends and to trainees and through interpretation to people yeah in general i don't know maybe it's too ambitious but i really i really hope that we will do just a little bit every time no i think you nailed it uh you know we had lots of discussions through the years with sam ham about it because when he lectures on it he very much talks about we're trying to get people to think Mm -hmm. We're trying to yes. get them to make their own meetings. We're not trying to tell them what to think, but yes. we're trying to get them to um, hopefully think more deeply about where they are, what they believe, why they care. Absolutely. Uh, and another interesting point that we use in Interpret Europe, uh, we have these four qualities. You, maybe you have read them on our side. It's turning phenomena. Phenomena is heritage elements, right? So turning phenomena into experiences, provoke uh, resonance and participation, uh, offer paths to different meanings, to deeper meanings, and to uh, foster stewardship for all heritage. And the key word in this fourth uh, element is all heritage. So even if you come to Greece, my, my aim would not be to, to, con to help you connect with just Greek heritage, but heritage in general. And uh, the Parthenon and the Acropolis and the Greek uh, Aegean Sea would be just uh, the way to do that. Uh, to, to help you connect with all temples, with all natures, you know, not just the Greek part of it. Absolutely. I like it. I'm, I'm curious, you just had a professional meeting for Interpret Europe in Romania? Yes, it was our annual conference. How did that Finally, go? after all the COVID years. <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. Uh, really uh, you could feel the people so happy to meet again. I mean, yes. we had uh, we haven't met for four years, and it was uh, such a good way to to see friends again, to meet new members of Interpret Europe, to visit lovely Transylvania. I have to say, I I'm mesmerized with this place now. Um, I wish I could have stayed one week more to explore it myself, but unfortunately, I couldn't. And yes, we all left uh, with a renewed energy, 
uh, we recharged our batteries as people, as interpreters, and as members of Interpret Europe, which is also crucial because unfortunately, if we don't meet often enough, and this is a problem for us because it's not so easy to travel uh, all over Europe to, to make these meetings. Um, yeah, it was a great opportunity. More, I think it was like 150 participants, if I'm not mistaken. So great That's number. Great. How many different countries participate? Uh, no, I'm not so sure. Um, I know that we have uh, members from uh, um, 28 European countries, but I'm not sure how many of these countries were represented in yeah. the conference, to be honest. Well, I know, I, I just saw a few pictures online of people at the event, and they look like they were having a good time. Maybe you recognize, because we also had some American friends there. Maybe oh, did you we? Spotted. Yes. Because uh, I, except of uh, the 28 European countries, you also have from Canada, the States, from Asia, Africa. I mean, uh, yes, it's impressive. Yeah, and that's part of the excitement of, of any of these annual conferences is it yeah. does attract people from other countries and uh, from outside the network. And mm -hmm. that's how we continue to um, kind of cross-fertilize. I've always been aware that going to those annual conferences for me you can get beaten down by the especially if you work for government you you can begin to feel like you are just in a washing machine and they're beating you to death <laughs> <laughs> and going back to that conference was always a chance to relight the fire that got yes. put up by the washing machine so yes 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 um absolutely uh i also see this same thing happening with Greek uh, members and people who got certified in the courses, it is so easy to go back and do things, the business, go back to business as usual. Sure. Okay. So we really try to stay connected, uh, meet every now and then when it's possible, or keep at least keep uh, on Facebook some group, some uh, exchange of news, etc., to to keep the light uh, there, light on. Yeah, I'm really aware that many organizations want conformity, and conformity sometimes seems like you know stay in the boundaries, play by the rules, and uh, interpretation's got a lot of create creativity as a part of it. And uh, I, I know I would always leave each annual conference with new ideas about what I was mm -hmm. going to do next. This is also the reason why we try to develop new modules uh, in our training uh, program, because modules are usually like two days, and it's a good opportunity for people who have been certified in something to explore maybe a new area or um, a more specific uh, part of interpretation. And it is also a good opportunity to attract people, for example, uh, gastronomy lovers and uh, food uh, foodies to come and see what heritage interpretation is by uh, participating in these small modules. So I consider them to be a very viable part of the training program that we run. 
I uh, like what you just said, partially because I'm food has always been a major interest of mine. I mean, not just as a person who eats things, but <laughs> I I used food and natural foods dinners as a part of the programming I was doing in the state parks 50 years ago. And part of what I love about cultural interpretation, um, we, we were doing the trainer's course in Italy, in Tuscany. And um, one of the people who got us to come there and do this was from experience plus and they do bicycle mm -hmm. tours in Europe. And uh, one of the young ladies who runs that organization, she would come to our table at each meal mm -hmm. and tell us where the food came from and what the cultural traditions behind those foods. And in Italy, especially that was uh, mm -hmm. a wonderful set of stories. I'm sure. And you know what you could do, Tim? You could do interpretation for the coffee that you produce. Well, Make a whole story about that and also try to, to explore how coffee is um, consumed around the world because there are so many different ways of uh, drinking coffee, aren't they? In yeah. Greece, you spend hours drinking your coffee because it's a, it's a way to discuss with people. Okay, so it would be a good idea. Well, keep in mind that uh, we have a one acre coffee farm. That's half a hectare. And okay. part of the issue we have right now is we sell out of coffee before the year goes by and people are contacting us and wanting to buy more coffee and we don't have it. So um, we actually have to be careful not to drum up more business. We need to just keep the customers we have, but uh -huh. we love having people come to the farm. And as Lisa would tell you, uh, you don't really have to say much to me to punch my interpretive button and get me to start. Talking. <laughs> I'm sure. I have never met, nor do I know who, is it Helena Visic is? Vicic, yes, Elena Vicic. Yeah, what is her, she's the managing director now of Interpret Europe? Yes, exactly. So um, we had uh, different people in this position in the past. Uh, the last uh, one was Torsten Ludwig together with Elena Vicic, uh, but uh, at some point uh, Torsten had already said that uh, he would step back. And now uh, we have Elena. Uh, she's uh, from uh, Slovenia. And so in the heart of uh, the European continent, it's very useful to live there. And uh, she's also an interpretive uh, planner and consultant herself and trainer. Uh, she, she has a lot of enthusiasm and passion for the work, but also for Interpret Europe. And you can see that uh, when she speaks, uh, I mean, uh, she, I, it's re I don't want to make a rose picture because uh, her duties are really hard. Uh, she has to run the whole network as a managing director herself. It's really a lot for her shoulders, but very good uh, job. And she is inspiring to continue our work as volunteers. Well, I, I it's wonderful to learn more about that. Uh, do you know how many members you have now in Interpret Europe? I was waiting for you to make this. 
Okay. And we have uh, just about 800 members uh, from uh, different countries, as I said. And this number goes up and down times, especially in the beginning of the year, some of the people uh, decide to cancel their membership, etc. We have also an issue with language because uh, some people are not so fluent in English, which means they don't really see the point in belonging in an English-speaking network, and they prefer to join a, na a national network if uh, such a national network exists in their countries. Um, however, we also have, uh, among these uh, members, we also have institutional members and business members, and we try to encourage more institutions to, to join uh, Interpret Europe. Uh, I feel we had a little setback during the COVID years because it was very difficult for everyone yep. To, to see the point of joining an international network when you are locked down inside your house. Uh, but now we start increasing again. So I'm very optimistic for the future. Well, I'm very heartened to hear that number. Well, Association of Interpretive Naturalists started in 1954. Mm -hmm. And when I got involved and eventually became president in the mid-1980s, we had about 850, 900 members. And uh, it was a long, slow journey. Mm -hmm. And because I, in 95, I became um, executive director, we were up to about 1,900 members. Oh, wow. <laughs> and during yeah. uh, tenure of me and Lisa working there, we grew to 5,500. Um, Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Paul Caputo tells me they're up now in the 66, 6,700. They've been as high as 7,000. So yeah. the network grows and um, the hard work is at the beginning where you're trying to make those connections. and Yes. And to find some key people in each country that can explain to people what heritage interpretation is, what interpret Europe is, and what do they do, etc. And uh, yeah, I think there is this turning point. And once we reach that, the word will spread faster and more easily. Uh, we haven't got there yet, but uh, I'm pretty positive that we will uh, in the near future, I hope. I'm sure it'll continue to grow. We're aware that sometimes there's one or two individuals in a country that take training or go to a conference somewhere else and they bring it back and they slowly build that network. And we can see that happen in Indonesia, in the Philippines, yeah. some really uh, locations that the network is fairly new, but it will grow. And you have coordinators, uh, What's the role of Ava and Alexander and Yale? Yeah. So we have the General Assembly. So all the members are General Assembly. And General Assembly votes the Supervisory Committee. The Supervisory Committee, uh, it's, uh, as you say, uh, Santi Colvine, and we have Yael from Israel, and Eva Sandberg, uh, which you probably remember from Sweden. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. as uh, the supervisory committee members. And then the supervisory committee appoints the managing director 
at this moment is uh, Elena. And uh, the managing director uh, appoints the, the, the coordinators. So we have some managing coordinators like uh, the news coordinator, the training coordinator, myself, um, uh, social media uh, and research. Then we have subject coordinators. Uh, so for specific uh, topics uh, that deal with interpretation like uh, uh, geology, architecture, uh, children, or uh, we have the, the live interpretation uh, subject group, etc., etc. So it all depends on what members uh, feel uh, should uh, that they are interested in and they would like to create a group of uh, that. And then we have country coordinators. So for countries where we have a lot of members, there is this person who is the link between uh, the main network and the members of that country. Each coordinator uh, is supposed to have a team that has, uh, the team helps him or her do the coordinator work. So wow. this is the whole construction. And the whole idea is that Interpret Europe is all of us actually, okay? The decisions are made in the General Assembly, we all vote, for that, everyone can bring in emotions that we discuss and we decide, and we all help uh, develop the network and steer where it will go from our positions, each one. Well, here we are meeting by Zoom. Uh, is <laughs> As Zoom or Google meets, have these become important parts of how you can pull these people together to have these conversations? Yes, absolutely. As you can imagine, uh, I'm the training coordinator. At this moment, we have uh, 24, 25 trainers from uh, different parts of Europe. And we meet once every month, the last Tuesday of every month, uh, to chat, to bring forward our news, but also to discuss uh, issues regarding uh, training. Uh, Elena is also present as a trainer herself, but also as managing director. The same happens with coordinators. So every now and then we have coordinators meetings. So all of this would have been very, very difficult or even impossible a couple of decades ago. Yeah. I, it's the opportunities that technology offers, obviously. Yeah. I Paul Caputo was telling me during a conversation with him that he said, we had a little known company called Zoom that was co-sponsoring <laughs> some of our activities right before COVID <laughs> came along. And yes. we didn't realize uh, it was going to become literally uh, an important meeting location yes. for all of us. And uh, yeah. as an organization, it's grown incredibly. What it, Where do you see yourself headed? What it, it, just more of the same or do you have other... I would love to do a little bit more planning than training in the upcoming years, but I really love both. I, yes, as a trainer, I feel so inspired by the people, the participants of each course. And I'm so amazed when I receive their homework and I see what nice ideas are out there. And I, yes, I, I really feel 
a better person myself when I read these uh, nice ideas of others. And on the other hand, I do miss a little bit doing more planning work and uh, develop my own ideas, have the opportunity sure. to be more creative. So yes, I, I don't see myself going far away from what I'm doing now, just balancing among the two. And since my children are now teenagers, ready to leave one actually one of them has already left for the university i hope that i will be more free to you know to to give more time on my professional life as well see i some of these courses are any of these held on zoom or through electronic no uh no very consciously we have said that uh, we will do all the courses in person we offer other things online, like webinars. Uh, we could also prepare. We were dis discussing several ideas of uh, training uh, opportunities, uh, training material, rather, that could be offered uh, online in an asynchronous, to use the Greek word, uh, way. Uh, but uh, the courses themselves, we feel that the group dynamics that are being developed during the course uh, are so valuable and uh, to use the phenomena that you have on site to do all the activities yes i, I wouldn't want to sacrifice this uh, but rather develop something different that also offers opportunities and inspires people but i would like to keep the i i say i but i talk as a valia personally but also as interpret europe we would like to keep uh, the courses and the modules as live uh, events. I, Lisa and I felt that way. We we preferred keeping the courses live. Pandemic came along and NAI, I think for economic reasons, really needed the, the CIG courses to continue to run. Mm -hmm. part, of, part of what happened in the United States is many state park systems and organizations adopted the CIG as their training platform. Okay. And so when pandemic put an end to face-to-face -face training, there was this pent up demand. And so yeah. they, and, and so when we went back to face-to-face -to -face courses, they have continued to allow us to teach it. And I, I do teach certified interpretive guide courses by zoom and I enjoy it a lot. Uh, yeah. But I still think, being in the same room with people is better. So I applaud your yes. work in that direction. I, I also offer some workshops online, not for Interpret Europe, but for other academic institutions. And it's wonderful. I mean, you have the opportunity to meet. Uh, I, I have the opportunity to meet with people from Africa and talk about interpretation. Right. With, but, but still, it's a different thing. It's something I don't put them on the same in the same box. Sure. No, I I think that's great. Well, hopefully we keep finding the ways to get together. I can tell you for uh, me, it's been a great uh, honor to get to see you again and talk a while. Uh, as we do these as podcasts, everybody's hearing our voices and that's great. <laughs> but uh, I enjoy the fact that we actually get to talk face to face and uh, that's true it's always such a pleasure talking with you uh, team and uh, you know that both Lisa and you have been a big inspiration for me and for many people like me I think well Lisa and I had the luxury of uh, 
kind of traveling the world for a period of time and getting to do this in a lot of different settings. And I confess, I don't miss getting on a plane every other week, but I do miss this kind of <laughs> So uh, thank you for taking that time to do that. Is there anything you want to share before we go away? Because uh... I'm very happy that we also have now the Global Alliance where different organizations from around the world come together and we have this opportunity online to exchange also the, the webinars, etc. So for me here in Volos in central Greece, to hear and read more things from all over the globe. I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity and I hope that it continues like that. Value, thank you for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. It's been a real pleasure to catch up. I hope many of you will join me next Friday when I talk to Jim Covell, who has a long and storied career with Monterey Bay Aquarium in California. I'd like to thank Mark Stoffel for use of Yin and Yang from his Cookies and Cream album, a wonderful mandolin presentation. And I'd like to remind you that from August 21st to 24th, Lisa Brochu will offer an interpretive planning workshop via Zoom, and you can learn more about it at heartfeltassociates.com, and you can register there. And thanks for joining us again today. Have a wonderful week. Aloha. Aloha.